It was an oratorical failure. A cool London reception greeted its choral strains and psalmodic arias. George Friedrich Handel's Israel in Egypt was dismissed in 1739, as was the first performance of his magnificent Messiah four years later. Dismissed this glorious music. Yet how many today know his earlier biblical oratorio about Moses and the children of Israel? When the Lord did blow with a wind, and the horse of Pharaoh and his chariots sank like lead into the Red Sea. There is wonderful musical drama here retelling the exodus from Egypt in narrative and psalm. From the somber plague motifs, he sent a thick darkness over all the land, even darkness which might be felt. To the powerful, he rebuked the Red Sea, and it was dried up. To the poignant, longing, very sweet, thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance." Handel paints the tableaus of the bondage in Egypt, the exodus from slavery, the crossing of the Red Sea in memorable musical peons. Handel's oratorio, Israel in Egypt, you relive the exodus in musical drama. From my handouts distributed last week, you will notice that the Exodus pattern in Scripture is an included article amongst that material, and you will understand the juxtaposition of John 6 and the Exodus narrative. Jesus comes to the synagogue at Capernaum after his fourth miracle sign and talks of Moses and the manna in the wilderness and the death of that manna-eating generation, the feeding of the 5,000, and the new exodus in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, indeed, He is the bread out of heaven. And if we miss the exodus motif, we are reminded in verse 4 of this chapter that the Passover was at hand. I want to look at John 6 with the background of the Exodus theme. Thus says the Lord to those who are bound, go forth. They will not hunger or thirst, for he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. The prophet Isaiah has projected himself into the captive condition of his people, They are bound by the fetters of captivity. They are enslaved by the bondage of exile. In Isaiah 49, 9, and 10, he announces to the captives, to those who are in bondage, thus saith the Lord, go forth. And the servant of the Lord, the Ebed Yahweh, is specifically commissioned to proclaim this eschatological year of release. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners, Isaiah 61.1. And so the exodus begins. Behold, I will allure them, I will bring them into the wilderness, Hosea 2.14. Out of bondage they stream. They go forth from a land of malediction and death, seeking a land of benediction and life. They have embarked upon a sojourn, a pilgrimage from the land of the curse to the land of blessing. Between the two lands is the in-between land, the land of the eschatological odyssey, the land of the behind and the before. Behind them is the land of slavery. Before them is the land of rest. In between is the land of trial, testing, probation, sojourning. 
and the transition. The transition from the old to the in-between. The transition is via a passage through the waters. It is by a water ordeal that the old is left behind and the sojourn in the land in between is inaugurated. And the transition from the land in between into the land of permanent rest will be via a passage through the waters. There will be no emergence from the land of sojourn. There will be no entrance into the land of perfect rest without an ordeal by water. The wilderness land will not be left behind except through baptism, a baptism which marks the consummate end of the old, the possession and occupation of the new. But as the pilgrim generation sojourns in the wilderness land in between, they are fed. They are given drink. I will give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, Isaiah 43:20. There is angels' food along the way, bread out of heaven. There are rivers of water to refresh the thirsty pilgrims. This pilgrim land, this land in between, is a place where meat and drink is spread abroad by the almighty hand of God. The God who feeds his pilgrim people as they sojourn is the God who also dwells with them. He, as it were, tabernacles in their midst, condescending to be their God, even as they are his people. This pilgrimage from the old to the new by way of the in-between, this pilgrimage is an ever-increasing participation in the incarnation of the Lord God who displays His glory in the wilderness. Light, bread, water, tent of the presence. Every element of the sojourn urges better things to come. When we are no longer in between, when our sojourning is over, when we cross over the water at last to the Sabbath land, Light eternal, no more darkness. Bread of life, no more hunger. Living water, no more thirst. Glory presence, no more clouds and smoke. And in that land, that perfectly, consummately new land, we shall find rest at last. In that new land, We shall see the Lord who has freed us from bondage, carried us through the wilderness, caused us to pass over the waters to Beulah land. We shall see him as he is in that new land and endless Sabbath morning will dawn out of the transition from death to life. In that heavenly Canaan, we will not hunger or thirst nor, there would be, nor will there be crying or pain anymore, and there will be no more darkness, nor will there be any more temple tabernacle, for the Lamb will be in that land, the new Canaan, that Lamb who bought us from the land of bondage with His precious blood, that Lamb who bore us all the way and carried us through the wilderness on his shoulders. That lamb will be all the glory of Emmanuel's land. The Old Testament prophets position themselves retrospectively and prospectively. They look back to the Exodus under Moses in order to rehearse it. They look forward to the new Exodus in order to possess it. The protological exodus becomes the paradigm for the eschatological exodus. God's mighty acts of grace, his magnalia dei, in time past, are projected into the eschatological future where, according to the prophets, the exodus will be recreated. In that new creation of the eschatological exodus, The people of God will once more be delivered from bondage. 
in that eschatological exodus, the people of God will once more pass through the waters. In the eschatological exodus, the people of God will sojourn in the wilderness where they will be fed with manna out of heaven and water out of the rock. In the eschatological exodus, the people of God will be visited by the tabernacle presence of the glory cloud from above. In the eschatological exodus, God himself will be in their midst. And at the end of that eschatological exodus, when the sojourn of those eschatological pilgrims is over, the Lord will bring them into the land, the land of eschatological milk and honey. And in that land, they will find rest. They will find eschatological rest unto their souls. Now, the sixth chapter of John's Gospel is drawing upon the exodus motif. The protological exodus under Moses and the eschatological exodus, which the prophets promise, protological and eschatological exodus come to accomplishment provisionally in the feeding of the 5,000. The wilderness sojourn of the Old Testament is mentioned in this chapter in verses 31 and 49. Moses is himself described in verse 32. The provision of manna in the desert is referred to in verses 31, 32, 49, and 58. Jesus is the bringer of the eschatological exodus for the people of God. The law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Christ. Legal exodus, prophetic new exodus, Evangelical eschatological exodus, they come to their accomplishment in Jesus Christ and in John 6. In the organic unity of the history of redemption, the exodus unfolds with the fullness of the times. Now a greater than Moses is here. Now the living bread out of heaven is here. Now the wilderness is transformed into a banquet arena, a superabundance of that bread out of heaven characterizes this this gospel arena. Now we rehearse this exodus, this new exodus in Christ Jesus, this eschatological exodus in the Lamb whose blood causes death to pass over. Now we stand under the blood of the eschatological Lamb. Now we sojourn between bondage and rest, between slavery and the heavenly Canaan, Now we feed upon living bread out of heaven. We drink from streams of living water. Now we journey with the glory presence. The I am identifies with us as himself, the eschatological pilgrim of the eschatological exodus. He lives the history in his own life. And so it can never fail again. And when we perch on the brink of the heavenly Canaan, that Lamb of God, that I Am, that eschatological pilgrim will carry us over Jordan to an endless Sabbath rest. I have suggested that the motif of the new and eschatological exodus here in John 6 is a fulfillment motif the accomplishing of the law and the prophets. I have also suggested that the motif of the new and eschatological exodus in John 6 is an incarnational motif. Christ himself embodies the imagery of the exodus in his own life. But I want you to note that the motif of the new and eschatological exodus in John 6 is also a replacement motif. The exodus under Moses, the new exodus projected by the prophets, have been displaced by the exodus Jesus brings. 
from John 6, the people of God of the end of the age belong to an exodus which Moses never anticipated. A new exodus which the prophets never visualized. An exodus which only the I am can imminentize. Oh, the exodus under Moses belongs to us as our history under the former era, and we can enter into the projection of a new prophetic exodus foreseen by the seers of the former era, but we possess things they only hoped for. An exodus transcending Egypt and Sinai and Canaan, an exodus in which God himself becomes the bond slave. God himself becomes the lamb God Himself becomes the bread. God Himself becomes the tabernacle. God Himself becomes the Sabbath rest. The eschatological exodus of John 6 replaces and displaces the exodus of Exodus 12 even as Jesus replaces and displaces Moses a greater than Moses has come. We have the fullness. We have the reality in Christ. We have an exodus which can never be reversed. Now you will notice from the little structural question outline on John 6 in your handout that the clue to this chapter as a narrative unit is that Greek phrase metatauta in English after these things. And if you turn ahead to chapter 7 verse 1, you will again notice that that metatauta, actually chi metatauta in that text and after these things repeats itself. Therefore, between 6.1 and 7.1, the markers of a uh, an integral literary or narrative unit. Now, in this section of John 6, Jesus uses the theophonic ego me, which is the I am <clears throat> it's the I am plus a predicate. And here For the first time, he says, I am plus a predicate, and here it's the bread of life. He will say, I am the light of the world. He will say, I am the door of the sheep. He will say, I am the good shepherd. He will say, I am the resurrection and the life. He will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He will say, I am the true vine. This is the theophonic, I am. But there is an epiphonic, I am, in John's Gospel. That is a mere I am alone with no predicate. And it occurs numerous times uh, in this fourth gospel, and it occurs for particular reasons. It is an ontological declaration in a stative sense. That is, that he is in himself the epiphany of God, okay, the manifestation of God. But with the predicate... It is a declaration that he adds the attributes of God in terms of the redemptive historical paradigm. He pulls into connection with himself the theophonic march of God as he appeared in his theophanies in the Old Testament history of redemption. So pay attention to the distinction between the I am plus something else and the I am all alone, or as is translated in some of the English versions, I am he. I wanted you to notice something else before we look at the detailed structure of this sixth chapter. I want you to notice in uh, verses 44 and 65, we have a declaration from the lips of Jesus of total inability. No one can come, no one is able to come unless the Father draws him. Total inability is the Siamese twin of the first of the five points of Calvinism, total depravity, If the Siamese twin be there, then the other twin be there as well. 
you are unable to come. Because of your sinful depravity, you are unwilling to come. Jesus is declaring here the total inability of a sinner to come unto God the Father except he be made able by the Father. That's the first of the five points of Calvinism. You will also notice in verses 37 and 39 of this chapter that Jesus says, All whom the Father shall give to me, all he has given to me, those who have been given to the Son by the Father, They have been chosen to be given to the Son by the Father. They have been unconditionally elected to be given to the Son by the Father. There's the second of the five points of Calvinism in John 6. Verse 37 again, All whom the Father gives shall come, verse 44, For the Father shall draw them. They shall be drawn. Anyone who is drawn by the almighty power of God the Father shall come. They shall come without resistance. They shall come without kicking and screaming. They shall come because they shall be made willing in the day of his power. There is the fourth of the five points of Calvinism, irresistible grace. They shall be drawn unto the Father by the Son. And finally, verse 39, all he has given me, I lose nothing. He will lose nothing of that which has been, anyone who has been given to him, he will not lose it. He will not. That's what Jesus says. I don't care what John Wesley says. Jesus says, all whom the Father has given to me, I lose nothing. You can trust Jesus. You can't trust John Wesley. John Wesley didn't die for you. Jesus did. So you got 80% of Calvinism in John 6. Four-point Calvinist. The third point is implicit. All right. Now, to the structure. Notice that we have uh, two scenes in this chapter. The first scene is uh, the miracle uh, that that covers, uh, actually the dual miracle that covers verses 1 to 21. And those... That scene is uh, composed of two subunits, verses 1 to 15 and verses 16 to 21. So if you're filling out the outline, number 1 under the chapter appears to be composed of five units, 1 to 15, 16 to 21. Then we have a little bridge unit, and I'll describe why I think that's the case, verses 22 to 24. And then we have the second major unit, namely verses 25 to 71, which is subsequently divided into two further smaller units, number four on your outline, 25 to 59 and 60 to 71. Now, what is it that delineates these units? You will notice that the first unit is the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, verses 1 to 15, And if you look at verse 3, you will notice that the word mountain appears in that verse. And if you look at verse 15, the word mountain appears again in that verse. It's exactly the same word in the Greek text. Jesus on the mountain with his disciples in verse 3. Jesus on the mountain alone in verse 15. Jesus on the mountain encloses or brackets the feeding of the 5,000. Now, one thing else you will notice, the shift in this scene is the shift between Jesus with his disciples and Jesus all alone at the end of the scene. Now, there are, there's another way to look at these first 15 verses. There's a small concentric chiasm here. If you look at Jesus and the multitude on the mountain in verses 1 to 4, and then notice that verse in verses 5 to 9, that, in, that indicates five barley loaves. Five barley loaves. There's not enough bread. There's only five barley loaves. Then Jesus gives the bread of heaven, verses 10 and 11. And then in verses 12 to 13, five barley loaves reappears. But this time, it's a superabundance of bread out of those five barley loaves. And finally, Jesus is on the mountain 
again in verses 14 and 15. So we have an A, Jesus on the mountain, 1 to 4. B, the not enough bread, 5 to 9. C, the center of the chiasm, the miracle Christ gives the bread, 10 and 11. The superabundance of bread, B prime, 12 and 13. The five barley loaves reappears, Jesus on the mountain, again, A prime, verses 14 and 15. Now, the second unit is the unit in verses 16 to 21 in which the miracle of uh, stilling the sea is very briefly reported. And here we shift scenes from verse 15 to 16 to be not on the mountain but on the sea. So that uh, indicates that we have a separate narrative unit. Now, John is very abbreviated about his report of Jesus' miracle on the water. He's much more abbreviated than the Synoptic Gospels. The reason for that is his focus is upon the feeding of the multitudes. That's the point that he wants to drive home. Not so much. He's not denying that Jesus did still the storm, but he's not focusing on that so much. Now, the third unit is this little bridge unit, verses 22 to 24. It's like the keystone of this five-fold chapter unit. It's at the center point. And how is it at the center point? You will notice that in verse uh, 22, the word multitudes appear. The the word multitude singular appears. Then in verse 24, the word multitude appears again. And here, the multitude is moving. Not Jesus is moving. The multitude is moving. The camera has gone off of Jesus and the disciples onto the crowd themselves. But they are following Jesus. They are following Jesus from the east side to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So the scene shifts by focusing the camera on the crowd as they shift. They shift locations. And then on the west side, they find Jesus, and we have the fourth unit altogether. Now, in between there, I put a little statement about what binds units 1 through 3 together. And you will notice in verse 1, the other side of the sea. And in verse 25, the exact same phrase, the other side of the sea. So there is, in a sense, an inclusio that brackets the first 25 verses of this chapter. Fourth unit. We have a shift now to a different location. Jesus is in the synagogue at Capernaum. You know that from verse 59 compared with verse 24. He's arrived in Capernaum and he is in the synagogue in Capernaum. When we are no longer dealing with miracle, we are no longer dealing with traveling on the sea, we are now dealing with dialogue. We now have a shift in motif, a shift in drama. It's not action, it's discussion. And Jesus in this fourth unit, which is verses 24 to 59, Jesus is in dialogue with the crowds and with the Jews. Now notice the bracket around the dialogue. Verse 24, Capernaum. Verse 59, Capernaum. It sets it off at its own integral unit. And that leaves the fifth unit, verses 60 to 71. Now we're not on the mountain. We're not on the sea. We're not shifting location from one side of the sea to the other. We're not in the synagogue, per se. We are with the disciples. And so now, in verse 60, we are looking at the response of the disciples. We've seen the response of the crowds and the Jews in verses 25 to 59. Now we see the response of the disciples, verses 60 to 71. And you will notice that these, uh, this fifth unit has two subunits of its own which are actually absolutely parallel. Notice verse 60. Many of his disciples. Verse 66. Many of his disciples. Now, put verse 63 under verse 60 on your outline. Words of life. Now, put verse 68 under verse 66. Words of life. 
Now put verse 64 under verse 63. Betray him. Now put verse 71 under verse 68. Betray him. We have a stair-step parallelism with respect to the response of the disciples to Jesus at the end of this narrative. Notice, verse 60 lines up with verse 66. Verse 63 with verse 68. Verse 64 with verse 71. Now, I'm not smoking and mirroring here. These are exact literary parallels from the original Greek text. That isn't an accident. That is intentional. John is signaling that he wants you to see something here. What he wants you to see, we'll comment on in a minute. Now, the fourth unit has four subunits. They are divided between verses 25 and 40, Jesus and the crowd, or Jesus and the multitude, and verse 41 to 59, Jesus and the Jews. Now, the first two units, that is, verses 1 to 15, 16 to 21, are related by the two miracles that are narrated in those two units. And that third unit is a bridge which forms the little transition between miracle and discourse, between miracle and discussion, between miracle and reaction. It is a central feature of switching your eyes, looking from one to the other, looking from Jesus to the crowd, from Jesus to the Jews, from Jesus to the disciples, like the crowd is looking for Jesus. So at the keystone of this chapter, they're looking for Jesus. The shift in the bridge is indicative of the shift in the drama. Now let's look at that first series of uh, questions and answers in verses 25 to 40. Notice what the crowd is doing there. They have eaten the bread. There's been a superabundance, a miraculous superabundance left over. And this crowd says, what a welfare system. What a welfare system. No more bread bin empty days. And so they look no higher than the horizontal level, no higher than the level of the temporal and political. A miracle worker who provides free bread, let's make him king. And he can feed the masses. Jesus, in this encounter, directs their attention away from the horizontal to the vertical, to the one who works. As his father works, he invites them to participate in the work of the arena out of which he has come. His miracle is a sign that he has come down from above, from the arena of the father. This bread from above works life, gives life to those who receive it. And in receiving it, they receive life by receiving the bringer of that life from above. Receive the bread of heaven, receive the bread of life, receive the I am, receive the above in the below now. Don't try to make me king. I don't belong to this arena. Come in to the arena where there is no more hunger, period. And so this unit ends as with the woman at the well, or it climaxes as with the woman at the well with a flagrant misunderstanding. Verse 34, give us this bread. You remember when she said in chapter 4:15, give me this water. They want their bellies full. Now, Jesus is not giving that kind of bread. And that's the point of his discussion. Now, the second series is outlined uh, in the little, uh, I shouldn't say little, the larger chiasm that you have 
uh, in that outline of John 6. Additional observations, verses 35 to 58, broken down into 35, 48, 49 to 58. The second series of questions is between the crowd and overlaps the Jewish interrogators. And here the focus is upon the identity of Christ. Who is he? He is the I am. And what does it mean to receive him? It means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That is receiving Christ. Now notice, once again, the element of misunderstanding is implicit in this description, in this language. Even as they want the bread that will fill their bellies, so they think he's talking about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Jesus is not talking about that. There is no sacramental or Eucharistic language in John 6. I don't care what the Roman Catholic exegetes or all the high church advocates do from here till kingdom come. This is metaphorical language. He is talking about receiving him by faith as taking in what is him, namely his life-giving flesh and blood. Now notice, if you don't believe this, take a look at verse 47. He who believes has eternal life. Now look at verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. There's an old plain G theorem. If quantities are equal to the same quantity, they are equal to one another. So if eternal life is the common element in this double formula... He who eats my bread and flesh and drinks my blood is equal to he who believes. A ninth grader could get it. Quantities equal to the same. If believing gives eternal life and eating his flesh and drinking his blood is giving him eternal life, then eating his flesh and drinking his blood is believing on him. That's what it is. It's as simple as that. All the concatenations about, you know, whether or not Jesus is anticipating the Exodus, projecting the Last Supper, blah, 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 ad nauseum. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. This is Johannine metaphor. It is metaphor for receiving and possessing Jesus by faith. Taking him into yourself by faith. There's no crypto cannibalism or sacramental transubstantiationism here none whatsoever that's been dreamed up by the priest crafters alright now these two units here in 35 to 58 focus at the center you will notice from that little outline I've given you in verses 39 and 40 in a double emphasis upon the resurrection of the last day the eschatological significance of this bread of life discourse is, is concretely and tangibly focused at the center of this massive chiastic reversal. And the second unit, <clears throat> verses 49 to 58, is focused upon eating his flesh and having life. Notice verses 55 to 57 and 58, as they end with the opposite of verse 49 to 50, not die but live. Now, the final unit here with the disciples, verses 60 to 71. Here is where we find the drama of this chapter drawn out into divisions over Jesus, divisions which even extend into the band of disciples which has been following him. And those divisions will not end, they will not end until chapter 20. Many of his disciples, many of his disciples would no longer walk with him. But Peter says, to whom shall we go? So that the twelve remain, though one of the twelve is a reprobate devil. 
even within the band of those that remain with Jesus, one plays the game. One pretends to be part of the inner circle until he can make money for selling or handing over his master and then his true colors appear. The drama of this chapter not only draws us into the eschatological exodus now present in Christ Jesus, but each scene in this chapter presents the drama of response to Christ. In verses 1 to 15, the crowds crassly reduce Jesus to a national political deliverer, an earthly messiah. They have misunderstood the meaning of this abundant multiplication of bread and meat. But the disciples, though Philip and Andrew do not quite understand what Jesus is about to do, nonetheless, they are with Jesus on the mountain, verse 3. They are with him. They remain with him. At the conclusion of the miracle, they gather the abundant remainder of the supernatural meal, and with Jesus, they obey him, they serve him, they stay with him even at the end of the chapter. In verses 16 to 21, the disciples move from fear to calm even as the epiphany of Jesus walking on the water pacifies them and the sea, and they receive him into the boat. Here the epiphany is not the theophonic I am plus the predicate, but the epiphonic I am. In verses 22 to 58, the crowd follows Jesus seeking more from him only to murmur and argue when he makes the theophonic claim I am the bread out of heaven. The climax of the drama comes when not only the crowds and the Jews, but even some of the disciples reject Jesus, withdraw from him, and sojourn no more with him. But the twelve remain, with Peter as the spokesman. You have the words of eternal life. We will Feast upon your body and blood. Believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The feast which Jesus spreads in John 6 is a feast for the hungry, those who are bond slaves of the principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this present evil age. They are famished in soul and eager for this bread, this living bread, this bread out of heaven. This bread is not the food of death. It is not the meat which perishes. This bread is a foretaste of an eternal feast for those who hunger for the living God. It is a bread to feed on. It is a life to eat and drink. It is a nourishment which is a gift from above. And the eating of this bread and the drinking of this blood is the bond of a union so sweet, so ecstatic, that all who taste it never cease to eat and drink. You have been drawn by the Father to the bread of life. You have been given this living bread to eat by the Father so that you may never hunger anymore. You have been chosen to eat this bread and to live forever. Now the bread of life feeds you. Now the living bread sustains and nourishes you. And when you are raised up, On that last day, as he has promised you in his own eschatological exodus in John 6, this bread will nourish you forever and ever and ever. For Jesus, Jesus is the bread of life. And you have been chosen to feed upon him 
eternally, without end, never famished again. Now that brings us to John chapter 7. And to the second verse, which alerts us to one of the pilgrimage feasts of the Hebrew calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles, recalling that in John 6, the context for the Bread of Life discourse, and the feeding of the 5,000 was the Passover. That's another of the pilgrimage feasts of the Jewish calendar. They are actually in order... The Feast of Passover, the first pilgrimage feast. Pilgrimage feast meaning you go up to Jerusalem. The second is the Feast of Pentecost. And the third, in the order of the calendar year, is the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes called the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. Passover, often called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is the beginning of of the vernal or spring harvest. Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, as it's sometimes called, is the end of the vernal harvest, the spring harvest. And Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering, as it's sometimes called, is the end of the entire harvest year. It is the autumnal harvest, It is the Jewish Old Testament Thanksgiving feast. Now, in the agricultural year, these feasts had significance. The feast of Passover was the beginning of the spring grain harvest. It's the beginning of the barley harvest, as we learn from Deuteronomy 16.9. The Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, is the end of the spring harvest. It's the end of the spring wheat harvest. It's the time when the first fruits of the wheat harvest, the first fruits of the earth in the new year, are brought up to the Lord. Now, I want you to notice that that significant harvest must occur in the land in the land. You don't harvest wheat in the desert, in the wilderness. This is a feast to be observed when you come into the land. And finally, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the end of the annual harvest cycle, the fruits of gathering in the end of the year's harvest, Exodus 23:16. This marks the conclusion of the labors of planting and sowing and and, and reaping and gathering and processing. So there are agricultural associations with with these feasts from the uh, laws or the calendars of the Pentateuch, but there are also theological implications for these feasts because... The Feast of Passover commemorates the Exodus. The Feast of Pentecost is to be observed when you're in the land. Therefore, it is a commemoration of the entrance into Canaan. And the Feast of Tabernacles is a recollection of dwelling in little booths, little tents, remembering that when you were in the wilderness, when God brought you out of Egypt, you dwelt in tents. This is the feast in which you recall that you sojourned between slavery and ultimate rest. Now, I am interested in the past, present, future paradigm of the biblical theological significance of these Old Testament feasts. I want you to notice that when you stand in the present observing one of these feasts, you stand related. You stand related retrospectively to the past and you stand related prospectively 
to the future, may I say that in the present you stand introspectively trying to understand, not looking inside yourself, but looking at the festival as how you existentially, we can say this is the existential vector, how you existentially fit into the paradigm. This is an organic paradigm. You in the present are organically connected to the past, and you are organically connected to the future of that feast. So what in the present are you remembering? You're remembering the past exodus at Passover. The historical exodus. You're remembering it. You're in fact reliving it. You're rehearsing it. You're existentializing it. You're making it alive again as you presently keep it. But you are not absolutizing that existential present aspect of your observance of the Passover because you know that there is a better Passover to come. The prophets have told you that. There is a land in which the exodus is completely fulfilled. Even as an Old Testament Jew, you know that. There is a dwelling place of God in the heavens, a habitation where you shall dwell forever and ever. That is clear. And the prophets project this eschatological exodus when the exodus will be completed in glory. You are related to the past and to the future in your present observance of the Passover feast. So the Feast of Pentecost. You are looking back to the time when you were cut off from the land. You had no harvest. And now you are enjoying the harvest of the first fruits, the gathering in of the first fruits of the land. But you are not absolutizing that in gathering in the land. You are not saying that's the end all and be all of my land gathering harvest. You are saying that I am related to the eschatological Pentecost when the ingathering will be completed and fulfilled in a land from which we will never again be ejected or exiled. And so it is with tabernacles. With the Feast of Tabernacles, we remember the past wilderness sojourn. And when we camp out in our little lean-to in Israel, we don't absolutize the fact that we are permanently sojourners. No, we are pilgrims on the way. We are pilgrims on a journey. We are pilgrims on an odyssey to an eschatological tabernacle, a place where the tabernacle is surpassed in heaven where no tabernacles exist anymore. Now, in John 6, Jesus says, that has happened. And in John 7, Jesus says, that has happened. It's over. It's fulfilled. It's accomplished. And that's the reason John has this journey of Jesus to Jerusalem and the Feast of Tabernacles. And only he has it. All right. In the Feast of Tabernacles, you spent a week in a lean-to, seven days in a twig and branch hut. The feast began with the cutting of branches from trees and fashioning those branches into a leafy booth, a sukkoth, as they say in Hebrew. And for a week, the children of Israel were to dwell in these huts. Why? That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Leviticus 23:43. You perceive the redemptive reference in that comment. Tabernacles, the Jewish Thanksgiving feast, thanks for the autumn harvest, thanks for the ingathering of the fruits of the field, but far more Israel thanks God for his act of grace in the Old Testament when he brought them out of slavery. 
liberation, emancipation, redemption from bondage, from servitude, from abject slavery, from the yoke of the oppressor, from the kingdom of darkness, from the principalities of powers, all arrayed over against the God of the covenant. So here are the Jews in John 7, remembering that God is the Savior, and he acted with a mighty arm to redeem them from Pharaoh and to let them dwell in tents in the land in between. Now, tabernacles also recalled a time of camping out. The days of pitching tents and striking tents in the desert. The days of following a cloud by day and fire by night. The days of sojourn and pilgrimage. The days of advance to the land of rest, the land of milk and honey. The Jews in John 7 are remembering, spending a week remembering that the land of rest is beyond, that a temporary lean-to takes them back and forth, back to the wilderness, forward to the land of settlement. It is always so for a believer. Back and forth, back and forth, back to the great act of God's redeeming grace, forward to the land, the land where rest is permanent. In other words, history and eschatology converge in your present reality. Now, every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles in the time of Jesus, and here's where you need your map of Jerusalem again, every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles in the time of Jesus all over Jerusalem, the people who had come up for the feast would gather at the altar in the temple. And they would follow the high priest as he made his way out of the temple precincts through the water gate or the east gate on the east side of Jerusalem and go down to the pool of Siloam, which you will see at the bottom of your map. There at the pool of Siloam, the high priest would dip a bowl into the water and draw water out of the pool in order to carry that water back up the hill and through the water gate to the altar in the temple. On the return trip, the crowd would chant the words of Isaiah 12.3. You will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And they would wave their little lulavs, their little leafy branches as they sang the halals on the way up the Psalms of Ascent, on the way back up to the altar. When they reached the altar, the high priest would pour out the waters of Siloam, the waters of Siloam that glow gently. Now, in addition, during the Feast of Tabernacles in the time of Jesus, every evening the inhabitants of Jerusalem were aware of a glow of light, a luminous radiance emanating from the temple courtyard. For every evening during tabernacles, huge lampstands, huge menorahs were erected in the temple court of the women, and they would be filled with oil, and by means of huge wicks, they would be set aflame so as to cast their light in every corner of the city of God. These lampstands were over 50 feet high, and from dusk to dawn during the seven days of the feast, it was said that all Jerusalem basked in the light of the temple precincts. Now listen to how the Mishnah describes the observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. Anyone who has not witnessed the rejoicing at the water-drawing libation has never seen rejoicing in his life. At the close of the first holiday of the Festival of Booths, they went down to the court of the women where they had made an important rearrangement. And golden candlesticks were there with four golden bowls at their tops and four ladders to each one. And four youths from the young priest with pitchers of oil holding 120 logs in their hands, which they used to pour into every bowl. From the worn-out drawers and girdles of the priests, they made wicks and set them alight. 
And there was no courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up with the light of the water-drawing libation. Now, do you have the picture in your mind? Do you see this crowd gathering around the altar as the priest pours out the water during the water libation ritual in the Feast of Tabernacles? Look at John 7, verse 37. And on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, put your finger there and turn over to chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. You must smile. You must smile. For you see what he's doing, don't you? He is saying, I am the feast of tabernacles. And so the water and light ritual is over and finished because I have come to replace it and displace it. I am the accomplishment of the Feast of Tabernacles for I am the eschatological water and the eschatological light. Now take your five-minute break and come back and we will finish this discussion of the Feast of Tabernacles And we will move right on to John chapter 8. Yes, we are clicking along tonight.